Stand as we read God's Word this morning. Romans chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12 and go through verse 16. I'm going to start in verse 11 to be to start. It says, For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will, all, will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Father God, we once again come before you. We ask for your blessing in our time, in your word. Father, uh, this isn't an uh, easy text to deal with. Uh, Lord, this is a complicated chapter, but it is one that we must uh, wade through. It is one that we must uh, seek to understand what your good and pleasing will is. Lord, above all, that we would remember even in the difficult texts that we look at, that we would understand that you alone are God. You are alone the one who is to be worshipped and praised. And Lord, whatever your good and pleasing will is, whatever your plan is, that we would stand and we would applaud and we would sing at the top of our voices that you are the great I Am. So Lord, we go before you with that spirit. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're in this series that we've entitled Hypocrite. Speaking of the judgment of God, looking through Romans chapter 2. And we've been looking at what is, if you will, a courtroom uh, scenario. Paul is the prosecuting attorney. God is the judge behind the bench. And all of humanity are the ones that are standing accused. And we've been looking at this uh, chapter for the last couple of weeks. And we've been seeing how God is completely fair and just in his judgments. That he doesn't just go and look at the sins of Romans chapter 1, but he then looks to uh, those that believe themselves to be more respectable, those that are more moral. And he says, as Paul unveils this prosecution, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us will stand before the judgment of Christ. And so we see this courtroom scenario coming about. But we get to, in this third week, uh, the beginning of the verdict. It's not the whole verdict, but it's the beginning. And it's really kind of telling us where God, the righteous judge, is leaning in his understanding of who we are and uh, what we will be judged for. It seems that he begins to unveil the verdict that he will give once uh, in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 19 and 20, saying there are none righteous there are none then that uh, who uh, can say anything. Their mouths are silenced because they stand before the judgment of God. It seems in our world today that we find ourselves being impacted not just by God's verdict, but the verdict of human judges. I began to think about some of the amazing verdicts that have come down, whether good or bad, whether uh, rightly... Uh, a right verdict or a wrong one. And nonetheless, in our country, especially because of the court system, we find ourselves uh, living in light of certain verdicts in our court. Does anybody remember what uh, the verdict was and what uh, was allowed uh, in the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka? What was that? Desegregation of the schools. Let's keep going with this. We'll do a little quiz, see if you're awake this morning. Engel versus Vital in 1962 was a verdict that did what? All right, y'all fail. It banned school prayer. Let's try an easier one. Miranda versus Arizona gave the verdict that brought forth the Miranda rights. You have the right to remain silent, by the way. Okay, 1973, a verdict came down involving Roe v. Wade. It was the right to have a abortion nationwide. We see, uh, of course, a verdict that came down on December 12th of the year 2000. Do anybody remember what that verdict allowed? It was a Florida recount. You guys forget that. 
1925, a verdict came down involving a man named John Scopes. Does anybody remember what that verdict allowed for? Teaching of what? Evolution, Darwinism. In 1951, a verdict came down on a famous couple who was charged with delivering information about the construction of the atomic bomb to the Soviets. You remember what that couple's name was? The Rosenbergs. In 1946, a series of trials took place where guilty verdicts were unveiled uh, and they involved what war crime? The Nuremberg War Crime. 19, or I'm sorry, 1857. A court case that would lead us to civil war involved a slave who was taken to the north, who got married in Minnesota and then was sent back to Missouri. That slave's name was Dred Scott. Wow, some of you guys are on. Let's talk about some other ones very quickly. October 3rd, 1995 in Los Angeles County, a verdict was given of not guilty to who? Warren Vall James Simpson. June 2nd, 1997, in Denver, Colorado, because it was too dangerous for this person to stand trial in the state where the crime was committed, it was criminal case 96CR68, a guilty plea, and the death penalty was given to a man named Timothy McVeigh. What did he do? He was the bomber of the Oklahoma City building there. But of all of those, now there have been a lot of incredible verdicts that have been given. But the one I thought about took place during my life on April 29th, 1992. Does anybody remember what watching a verdict take place on April 29th, 1992? Who had a verdict given against them? It was three individuals. They were um, from the Los Angeles what? Police department. What had they done? Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? Remember? He's pulled over for a uh, traffic violation and a, uh, a beating ensues. There's a question of whether they went too far, if they had done too much in trying to restrain him. And on April 29th, 1992, they are given a not guilty verdict. Now, the amazing thing was is that an African-American man had been beaten on the streets of Los Angeles, and he was to be given a trial amongst his peers, and the tr- jury for that trial had no African-Americans on it. Ten whites, one Korean individual, and then one who had a Native American background. And the African-Americans in L.A. were furious. There was no free and fair trial. And as a result of that one verdict, I was amazed to look at the statistics of this, six days of rioting took place in Los Angeles. It would involve 53 fatalities, over 2,400 serious injuries to individuals, 7,000 structural fires, 3,000 damaged businesses, and over a billion dollars in losses over one verdict. Now you'd say that's a, that's a pretty big verdict. That's a, that, that, that one has ramifications. That one had a ripple effect in our lives, one that we would never forget. And yet in Romans chapter 2, there is a verdict that is being given that makes the Rodney King verdict look like nothing. And it's the verdict that God gives to humanity. Remember, in Romans 2, God is declaring all of us guilty. But when he does that, there are some objections Just as there were objections to the Rodney King trial, there are objections that people give and they say, wait a minute, God, that doesn't make sense. Wait a minute, God, that isn't fair. I can't serve you, God, if you're going to do that. I can't do that if that's how you are going to allow your verdict to be placed. And so in our text today, Paul, the master prosecutor, unveils some things to us. He tells us, first of all, in Romans chapter 3, that we're all guilty. That's the verdict. Our crime is sin. And he says, your punishment is eternity in hell. Now that is all given in Romans chapter three, verses nine through 20 at the end of the prosecution's argument. But then Paul moves us, of course, back into our text in Romans chapter two. And he says, but before we get there, let's understand a couple things. The first thing I want you to understand about God's judgment, about God's verdict, is that we must understand the one who is giving the verdict, God, is completely impartial. Write that in your outlines this morning. The judgment of God is completely impartial. 
See, before God uh, utters his verdict and the reason for it, he establishes in Romans chapter 2 why he is the judge and why he is allowed to give the verdict that he is going to give. Look at our text again and look at what it says in verse 11. It says, for God does not show favoritism. It utters the words that God is not one who is impartial to one or the other. He's completely impartial. Now, I think in our human courtrooms, we find that idea of trying to set apart the human judge from all the rest. If you've ever been in a court, you understand that when uh, the judge walks in, whether male or female, what are we all called to do in the courtroom? Stand. It's a sign of reverence. The judge is entering the room. Now, does the judge come and sit right next down, right now next to you in the chair uh, on the floor? Of course not. The judge goes and sets themselves up behind a bench, a big wooden desk, and it's above everybody else in the room. The judge even has a personal bodyguard they call the bailiff. If the judge doesn't like what's going on, if you are acting up in the court, he just points to the bailiff and points to you, and it's done. The judge has got his own bodyguard, if you will. We also see that the judge has uh, a different set of attire on. The judge doesn't walk in with a t-shirt and uh, a pair of uh, uh, shorts. The judge walks in, maybe he's wearing that beneath the robe, but we don't see that because he's wearing this long or she's wearing this long black robe. Again, setting them apart from everybody else. When the judge is talking, no one else talks. You only get to talk when the judge says you get to talk. All of this is to say that something is different about the human judge than everybody else in the room. Romans chapter 2 begins to unveil in verses 2 through 11 that God is different. God is set apart. But is it his clothing? Is it where he's sitting? Is it because he has a personal bodyguard? None of that sets him apart. But we see some other things. Look at what the text says. In um, verse 11, we're told why he's a judge. Now we're told, given uh, characteristics, we, we learn that he's the impartial judge because he judges, in verse 2, according to truth. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Well, what does that mean? What it means is God's judgment is not based on circumstantial evidence. It isn't because the defense attorney or the prosecuting attorney were able to use flowery and persuasive speech to be able to communicate that whether we're right or wrong, whether we're guilty or innocent, that he is moved because of the language or because of the oratory or skills of speaking that come from the lawyer. But it is based on one thing. It's not a guess, but it's based on the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. God judges according to the truth. Next we see that he is impartial because he judges in up in that he his judgment is in proportion to individuals. It's in proportion to the individual sin. Look at verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, what happens? You are storing up against yourself for the day of God's wrath. God's wrath is being stored. Now what does this mean? This means that when you get up uh, and stand before God, God isn't going to start uh, condemning you for someone else's sins. God isn't going to say, oh, you know, uh, well, you lived in the same town as that individual did, and uh, you knew better than that, so I'm going to tell you that you're being judged because of the location of your sin in proximity to another sinner. That's not what he's doing. What he's saying is, is, all right, what have you done? What are the deeds that you have done? Let's look at them. Let's wipe everybody else away. Your wife's not involved. Your husband's not involved. Your kids aren't involved. Your boss isn't involved. It is just you. And you've got the spotlight on you. And God says, all right, I'm going to judge in proportion to the sins that you've had in your life, to the way you've lived. We see this in Luke chapter 10. Turn there for a moment. Turn, if you're in the book of Romans, to your left, to the book of Luke, which is a couple books over. Luke chapter 10. Jesus talks about this. See, God's completely fair. 
And God isn't going to judge you for the things that you don't know. And God's not going to judge you for the things that you weren't a part of. But notice he is going to call you to some things. In Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 13, listen to what he, uh, what he says uh, in verse, uh, let's start in verse uh, 11. The kingdom of God is near, he says. I tell you in verse 12, it will be more bearable on the day for, on that day, speaking of the judgment, for Sodom than for that town. He says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles were performed in you, meaning if they took place where you were at, that had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. They would have been sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects me, but he, uh, let's see here. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. What is Jesus saying? He's saying on the judgment day, you're going to be uh, judged according to the amount of light that you've been given. And what he's saying to these cities is, man, I did all kinds of miracles in these cities. You saw the glory of my divinity and my deity there amongst you. You saw me turn water into wine. You saw me turn loaves and fishes and multiply them. You saw me uh, allow the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to be raised. And yet you still did not believe. And he says, if that all, if you saw all that, then you should have known better. If you had seen all that, then you should have repented. And the ones that haven't seen all that, well, I will not judge them according to how I will judge you, but it'll be in proportion to what they've seen and what they've been a part of and the rebellion or their obedience to that. Next, we see that it is according to righteousness. It's according to righteousness. This means that God's judgment is completely equitable. It is completely even in his decisions. So understand this. This is important for us on a Sunday where we spend the whole first portion of the service speaking about the love of God. Understand, God is love. But that doesn't take away that God is just. God doesn't say, well, I'm 50% love and 25% wrath and judgment. God is completely equal in his attributes. They are in complete harmony with one another. So we see that God is righteous when he loves. God is righteous when he shows mercy. But that same uh, righteousness is completely real and true when he shows wrath, when he shows judgment, when he shows his divine anger. We need to understand it's according to his righteousness. It is there that we learn in Romans 9, 15, that uh, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I decide. The idea here is God is righteous, case closed. That's how he judges. The next thing we see is it's according to people's deeds. You aren't judged for somebody else's sins. You don't pay somebody else's bill just yours. You're not going to get up to heaven and say, well, you shouldn't have married that individual. And because you married them, well, you share everything. You shared a mortgage. You shared the cars. You're going to share one another's sins. I will not be judged for my wife's sins. And praise be to God, she will not be judged according to mine. We don't get judged for that. We get judged on who we are and what we've done. Look at what the text says, verse 6 of Romans chapter 2. It says the following. Paul says, God will give to each person according to what he's done. To each person, not to a group. You're not going to be judged for the sins of Village Bible Church. You will be judged for your sins in them. My friends, instead of trying to change the truth, Instead of trying to work out and try to understand how uh, God can be uh, loving and just and yet be wrathful and angry because of sin and be just, I will tell you, it is something that is declared throughout Scripture and we must worship God in both of them because our God is an impartial judge. 
We have to understand that. Now, why do we have to understand that? Because there's going to be some objections that are given. Look at the next part of the text. The next part of the text unveils two groups of people who have a problem with the objection. Notice what the text tells us next. God's judgment, once we learn that God is impartial, we see that God's judgment involves the um, informed. It involves the informed. Look at verse 12 and 13. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Now, there's two groups of people in verse 12. The first group of people are those that uh, don't know the law. Look at what it says. Those uh, who are apart from the law, who sin apart from the law, will perish apart from the law. That's the first group. I'll get to verse uh, cha- uh, point three in a minute, but those are the ignorant, if you will. And then he says to the informed, all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Notice the first two words in the uh, translation that we have. All, or the first three words, all who sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Romans 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 12, all who sin. Everyone has sinned. Not one person that has walked the face of the earth other than Jesus Christ himself has found themselves to live a perfect, sinless life. All of us have sinned. Now, there's some objections. The first objection comes from the Jewish uh, audience. Paul says, all right, whether you've heard the law or you haven't, you're going to be judged. And the Jewish people must have sat there and said, "Uh, wait a minute, Paul, we're God's chosen people. We have the patriarchs. We have the law. We have all the history and all the great things that you uh, have uh, or God has allowed us to be a part of. We have all that going for us. Now you're saying we're going to be judged. Wait a minute. Aren't we going to sit on thrones and judge others? Aren't we going to be the one that are going to be the chosen people that people will come from far and wide from the four corners of the world and they will worship our God, our God, whom we've loved all these years. The first objection comes from the Jewish people. And Paul utters some words that we need to hear. Because they're grumbling. We've done all these things. Why would judgment come upon us? But notice what he says. He says in verse 12, or verse 13, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Now, what is being articulated here? Paul gives a hypothetical situation. And what he says is, all right, Jewish individual, yes, you have the law. And yes, the patriarchs were given to you. And all the Old Testament is a uh, a testimony, if you will, of God's covenant relationship with Israel. But here's the problem. If you think by you being a part of uh, the family of God, if you will, by being a part of the people of God, if you think that's going to exempt you from judgment, understand it isn't those that just hear the word, but those who do it. Now, what does he mean by those who do it? Those who do it perfectly. Now, what Paul is uttering is the statement that says, if you can do everything the law says, then yes, you will be justified. If you do everything that the patriarchs and the prophets told in the Old Testament, if you can look at the law and say, I did everything, then you'll be justified. Now you'd say, nobody would do that. Nobody has done that. And yet the scripture uh, tells us of a couple different times that people came to that thought. Turn to Luke for a moment again. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You'd sit there and say, that's preposterous for anybody to think that they've done such things. And yet it was something that was going on during Paul's life and during Jesus' life as well in the life of the Jewish people. Luke chapter 18, uh, starting in verse 12. Luke 18, uh, we're gonna, let's go back to verse 9 to give us some context. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He's saying, all right, I'm going to share this story because some of you think you've done it on your own. Now notice what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pay, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about who? Himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Go down to uh, verse 21, speaking of a rich young ruler. 
He says, uh, no one is good, he says, except God alone, Jesus answers him. In verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false witness. Honor your mother and father. And what does he say? Look at verse 21. All these I have kept since I was a boy. What was the thought that was going through the Jewish people? We've done our part. We followed it. We've taken care of every little bit of it. I've kept it up since I was a boy. You think that that was the only one that thought it? Paul, the writer of Romans himself, says in Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter uh, 3, verses 5 and 6, he says in verse 4, if anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, meaning confidence in myself, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, a pe- uh, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the best tribes around. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regards to the law, a Pharisee in regards to zeal, persecuting the church, the enemies of the Jewish people. I, for that, I was great. He says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul says, all right, you think you're that good? then you could be justified. But here's the problem. Nobody is that good. He says, Jewish people, understand, as you keep listening to my um, articulation of it, he says in verse 9 of chapter 3 to the Jewish people, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it is written... This is what he says. One of the prophets articulated this. He says, listen, Jewish people, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their mouths are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen to what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says that those who are under the law, says it to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable. Therefore, no one is declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. What's the message being said there? Paul is saying, if you thought that you could keep the law, James tells us, if you fell in one spot, what happened? You broke all of it. And so what is he articulating? It isn't the law that saves because you can't live up to the criteria of the law. And so stop thinking that you can do it. Now, how do we apply this? So many of us, probably 99% of us are not from a Jewish background. What is the application for us? What do we do with this text? What we do is we stop putting confidence in our flesh. We as believers uh, stop putting our salvation in our hands. Well, I go to church and I give and I don't cheat on my wife and I don't cheat on my taxes and and I don't speed. And uh, you know what? I tell my neighbors about Jesus and, and I do everything the Bible says. I get up at five in the morning and I have devotions. I take care of all of this. Look how great of a Christian I am. God must be glad he has me on his side. You say, I would never say that. If Paul was affected by it, the great apostle Paul, then I can, show, I can tell you minor leaguer Tim has been affected by it. There are times I sit there and I say, Lord, I deserve more. I work hard for you, Lord. I know I was up later than everybody else last night. I had to, uh, had to work hard. I only got a couple hours of sleep, Lord. I deserve more. I deserve blessing. I deserve more crowns in the day of judgment. And God says, hey, if you think that's going to get you to heaven, if you think that's what makes me happy, you're dead wrong. What makes God happy is when he bestows grace on a sinner. And he says, you know what? You're worthless, but I love you. You can't do anything for yourself, but I will do it for you. So he says to the informed, stop thinking you can fix it 
on your own. And understand, you are going to be judged. Well, how are they going to be judged? As lawbreakers. They were given the law. They knew the law. From the earliest days as a child, all the way up until they grew into adulthood, they were told they were to memorize the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. They knew what the Bible said. And they would be judged accordingly. Now notice there's a second group of people. Once he's articulated and taking care of the Jewish argument and objective, he moves to another side, and that is those who are ignorant. Because God's judgment involves the ignorant as well. Now, now that the Jews are put in their place, now the Gentiles say, okay, God, you're going to judge us? Well, you can't judge us. We didn't have the law. Ignorance is bliss. I didn't know that you had that law. I didn't know that I had to celebrate the Sabbath. I didn't know that I was to give Yahweh uh, my love and affection and to worship him with all my heart. I didn't know that it was wrong to go after my neighbor. I didn't know it didn't mean you can't have more than one wife. I didn't know that. So God, you cannot judge me for that. Paul says, hey, hey, let's stop there. Let's wait a minute. Yes, we can be judged, even if we are ignorant. I know this is going to be some heavy waters that I'm going to go through, but I'm going to work through it as quickly as I can, knowing that people have lots of questions in regards to this. So who are we talking about? In our day and age, we would look to the map and we would say, what about the one on that map who's never heard of Jesus? What about that one who has never had a missionary come and tell them about Jesus? We cannot expect that God on the day of judgment is going to condemn them to hell. What kind of God would do something like that? What kind of fair and righteous judge would do that? I'm going to tell you something. The reason why it's difficult to preach Romans chapter 2 verses 11 through 16 is because God says they are condemned. Whoa. Preacher, you believe that? Yes. Does it terrify you? Yes. Do you agree with it? Not on my human side. I sit there and say, God, come on. They didn't know. They didn't know better, God. But notice what he says that I must always remember in verse 16. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets. How? Through Jesus Christ. I can only see what I can see on the outside. God says, I'm going to look on the end. And he says, the ignorant... Yes, they are condemned. Wait a minute. That's not fair. I want to read two quotes to you. One first by a man named Robert McQuilkin. He says, I may never be able to prove from Scripture that no one since Calvary has ever reached heaven without a knowledge of Jesus Christ. But neither can it be proved from Scripture that anyone has done so. If it were true that people could be saved in other ways, and if it were good for people to know that, would not the Bible have told us so? Since it does not give us this hope, the hope must either be false or it must be good for people not to know about it. In either event, it would be wrong for me to speculate and propagate such an idea because the Bible does not say so. And it proves to be a false hope. And what damage could be done as a result. What he's saying is, is we have to teach Romans 2 on the merits of what it says. Now, what happens if it doesn't? Across the evangelical world, even some of the wonderful teachers that we listen to preach uh, on uh, radio and on TV, they, uh, some, espouse to what they call the wider mercy of God. And they will say, Tim, you're dead wrong. You're dead wrong and you're misunderstanding what Paul is saying. God is not going to condemn those that are ignorant. But according to his mercy, he will look beyond such ignorance and he will allow them to be in heaven. Here's the problem with that. If that is the case, 
then why would we ever think about worldwide missions? Why would God tell us to go and do the Great Commission? Let's say there is a Bushman in Africa who only knows three very small things about God. He sees God in creation and he praises God for that. He sees God in the love relationship he has with his wife and he praises that. And, and he sees the love he has for his children, that God must be the giver of life, and he praises some unknown being for that. And then I come in. He's already going to heaven. He got one through three right. But I come to heaven, or come to him, and I start telling him about sin. I start telling him about Jesus. I start telling him about that he has to live in holiness and uprightness, that he has to turn from the things that he does in ignorance and go to Christ. Now, what did I just do? I added rules number four through rules 100. And I said, now you got to meet these rules. Why wouldn't we let them just be in ignorance? And say, God, you're going to save them already. So let's leave them in their ignorance because there's a greater chance that they'll get to heaven on one through three than four through a hundred. Does that make sense? We don't want to go and ruin the setup that they have by telling them more that they may then in turn rebel. Let's say he does one through 62 just right, but number 63, he says, ah, I don't like number 63. That's not fair. I don't like that kind of God. Now he's condemned. I should have let him just be ignorant and have one through three and be in heaven. The second problem with that is, is what's being espoused amongst uh, liberal, uh, the liberal side of evangelicalism is that you can believe in another way to God and in your ignorance, you will still get to heaven. An Islamic individual out in the Middle East who worships Allah and gives praise to Muhammad in his ignorance does not know Jesus because he never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some in the evangelical world on the liberal side will say, well, he didn't know any better. And he tried to work with the best thing he could. And what he saw was that God was Allah. And you know what happens? That they'll say, you know what, when we get to heaven, there'll be Buddhists there, there'll be Hindus there, there'll be Muslims there. uh, And not those that have turned away from those false teachings, but those that will be there because out of their ignorance, they just saw the best option they could find and they went for it. And God says, well, you did your best, you tried, come on in. No, the Bible says they are condemned. So what do we do with this? Well, Paul tells us why they're condemned. Look, he doesn't just leave it there and say, they're condemned, let's move on. Look at what he says. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, he says they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they know the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them let's look at three things that an ignorant individual of the gospel has that makes them condemned by rebelling number one creation creation romans chapter one we looked at this when we dealt with romans chapter one last year romans chapter one verse 18 the wrath of god is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness Since what may be known about God, listen to what he says. Does he say is difficult for them to find? No. Does he say that it's uh, hidden for them? No. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. Why? Because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that what? Men are without an excuse. Now you say, come on, Tim. You're telling me that they're condemned because they look at the world and they don't see God and all that God has done? Yes, they are. I love history. I love studying the history of people. And if you look at any group of individuals who do not have uh, formal understandings of of, uh, what we would call a civilized nation, in fact, you look at the uh, three, uh, what we would call the three civilized uh, native groups uh, from the uh, Western Hemisphere. We had the Incas, uh, where were they at? They were in South America. We had the uh, Aztecs, and where were they at? They were in Mexico. And what do we learn from these uh, people? Did they have any religion? Yes. 
What did they worship? Did they worship God? No. They worshiped the sun god, the corn god, the rain god. They worshiped uh, all different kinds of gods. We look at the Greeks and the Romans and their civilizations. And they were civilized people. And did they revere God? No. What do we see? They, they worship the God of sex and the God of fertility and the God of love and the God of the underworld and, and the God of sun and all these different gods. Why? Because Paul says in Romans 1, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. He says, what did they do? In verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. What happens? When you worship the sun God, you worship a created thing. When you worship the God of corn, you worship a created thing. When you worship the God of sex or the God of the underworld, you worship created things. God says you are condemned because you should have looked to God and not created other things. The second thing is their conduct. Write that down. Creation and now conduct. It says they do by nature things required by the law. Understand this. This is seen throughout history pagans, those who do not say they believe in God, do things written in God's law without ever reading it. What do you mean? Unbelievers pay debts. Unbelievers honor their parents. Unbelievers who do not know Jesus Christ or have ever read the Bible love their wives. They love their uh, husbands. They love and care for their children. Children, even though they don't know Jesus, they care for their parents. They hold to what they have said, meaning they, uh, they stick to the truth. They hold on to their uh, promises. Many uh, in the pagan world believe it's wrong to kill. Most will feed the hungry. They'll help the sick. They'll seek the truth. They'll pursue justice. And they'll struggle for equity. You study any civilization throughout history and you will see these moral codes written all over their laws. But they didn't know God. They didn't know about the Bible. And yet the code of God is written on them. All of these things show an internal code of ethics that is a law to them. It becomes to operate the human system of our justice. We see it when they're, uh, when they're uh, involved in human, humanitarian issues that they take care of those who are hurting. Unregenerate people do good. They do good things. They're benevolent. They're kind. They hold to the law. And yet what that means is not that they will be saved, but that they will be condemned. The best illustration to give in regards to the ignorance of um, those that have never heard the gospel, let's say I was driving in France. And as I was driving in France, I don't know French. I don't even know if they have the same numbers in French as we do. I don't know. Okay, my wife's a French teacher, but let's say I'm by myself and I'm driving in France. I wouldn't want to be there, but I'm there. Okay, and so I'm driving. And all of a sudden behind me is one of the French police officers. And he comes up and pulls me over and he comes up and says, Oui, oui, monsieur, or whatever they say. You're speeding. And I say, I don't know what the speed limit is here. I can't read your signs. So you got to let me off. And what would he say? No, no. There's a law. And you're American. No, just kidding. There's a law. There's a law. And whether you understand it or not, it is my job to enforce that law. And here's the thing. I can't say that I didn't break the law because I did. I just may not have understood the ramifications, understand the whole process that, that my breaking of the law took place. But I do know one thing. Whether I'm here in the United States or in France, I could look at the world around me 
in that little car that I'd be driving in, I could look around and I could notice some things. If I'm passing every French individual on that highway, then I know something's wrong, whether or not I know the speed limit sign or not. What God is saying is, pagans, look around you. The signs have been all around you. You need to understand that there is judgment coming for your sin. So he says it involves creation, it involves conduct, it involves the conscience. One final thing there, it involves the conscience. Well, what's the conscience? The conscience is God's moral law written on your heart. Notice what it says in verse, uh, let's see here, verse uh, 15. He says, even though they do not uh, know the law, do not have the law, since they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. What, what tells them that? Their consciences bear witness and their thoughts now accusing are now defending them. A lot of stuff there. But let's go through it quickly. The, the easy definition of the conscience uh, by the dictionary standards is the idea and feelings within a person that tell him when he's not doing right and warn him of what he is doing wrong. That's the dictionary's definition of a conscience. I think it's pretty close. 30 different times in the Bible, we see this conscience uh, being talked about. It literally means to know together or to agree with. In fact, Job 27, 6 says, I will maintain my righteousness and never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Why? Because our conscience is the reflection of God in our soul. Not just for believers. Believers aren't the only ones who have a conscience. All of us do. And so our conscience is that reflection that says God agrees with us when we do right and he disagrees with us when we do wrong. You want to see your conscience at work? Then you do something that, um, that God loves. I told you a story some time ago. Noah and uh, the family of us were, were together at Olive Garden. Noah sees this uh, elderly lady that's sitting by herself. There's uh, great uh, sympathy and empathy for this woman dining by herself. And he says, like a good son, Daddy, you should do something for her. And I said, what do you want me to do? He says, you pay for her dinner. I said, okay, we can pay for her dinner and we'll do that. And we pay for the dinner. She finds out, we told the waitress we didn't want them to find out, uh, her to find out. She finds out, she's resilient, finds out who it is, and she comes and we spend some time talking with one another. And Noah, after everything's done, after the woman says, oh, this is one of the nicest things anyone's done for me since I've moved in this area, she leaves and Noah says, my heart feels good. <laughs> he hadn't done anything. I paid. Don't, don't be oohing and on over a six-year-old. No, I, I, was, I was proud. My heart feels good. Why? Because his conscience was bearing witness. God is saying, there you go, son. You did well. That same boy. That same boy goes to school every once in a while. I think he may even be in the place today, so I need to be careful. Goes to school and uh, he comes home. Now, the school, kindergarten, you have red, yellow, green. Green, you're all good. Yellow, not so good. Red, oh boy. And when I pick up Noah or when I come home from, from work, I'll ask the question, Noah, what color? Green, Dad, green. Then there's those not so good days. Dad or Noah, what, what, what color were you? I don't want to talk about it. They didn't give out colors today, Dad. <laughs> Substitute teacher, Dad. She doesn't know the whole thing. Why? Because his conscience bears witness. Sometimes it defends. Sometimes it accuses. So what is Paul saying? He says that's in the heart of every human being. Because they're made in the image and likeness of God. Notice what a couple of individuals say about this. John Wesley pictured the conscience as somewhere in the middle, under God and above man. He says it's a kind of silent reasoning of the mind whereby those things which are judged to be right are approved of with pleasure, but those which are judged evil are disproved with uneasiness. John MacArthur puts it this way. When we violate our conscience, it condemns us, triggering feelings of shame, anguish, regret, anxiety, and even fear. When we follow our conscience, it commends us, bringing joy, serenity, self-respect, and gladness. So how does that work? 
Paul back in the courtroom says, okay, to the one that's never heard the gospel, you saw it in creation. You did things that were according to the law. And then there's that voice within you that says, don't do that or do that. If you read any anthropology, you will understand that people, uh, whether they know it or not, whether they know psychology or, or the issues of the conscience or not, understand the sense of guilt and shame. They understand praise and affirmation. They understand the conscience. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with a text like this? Well, there's some questions that we need to answer. First of all, we need to understand a couple things. Number one, when they are condemned, they will not be condemned in the same level that we are. If we've heard the law, if we've heard of Jesus Christ, and we've trampled the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to understand that God is fair. He's not going to condemn the ignorant for something they don't know. He's going to condemn them on creation, their conscience, and their conduct. He's going to condemn us on our disbelief, our unbelief, our unwillingness and rebellion away from God because we heard the gospel and we turned away. So then another question comes up. Not only how severe will their punishment be, but the other question is, before I get there, let me read a quote here. James Montgomery Boyce says this, I mentioned previously that every preacher who spends time trying to answer questions about Christianity has heard the question about heathens, the heathens, over and over again. What happens to that poor heathen in a far-off jungle who has never heard about Jesus Christ? Will God condemn him for failing to believe on a person whom he has never heard of? I've answered this question in many ways, various ways over the years. One answer I've given is particularly to those who are not Christians, <clears throat> is that if someday we get to heaven and discover that a number or even all of these untaught natives have arrived in heaven despite our failure to tell them about Jesus, all we will be able to do is praise God for his great mercy in unfathomable ways. It will make us eternally happy. But if on the contrary, we get to heaven and discover that not one of these untaught heathens is there, all of them being condemned for failing to do what they should have on the basis of natural revelation, we will still praise God for his mercy to whom it was extended and acknowledge justice in the heathen's case since the, ju the judge of all the earth always does right. Now let's say we're mistaken. And we misinterpret what Paul is saying. I don't think we are, but let's say we are. Understand whatever God does, we're going to glorify in God. And you get that set in your mind right now. That God, you judge rightly. You judge in a way that I can't judge. You know the secret hearts of every man, woman, and child. I'm going to leave it up to you. But notice what he says. However, when I come to Romans 2.12, as we do now, I am reproved for this answer. For the text does not suggest that the heathen may somehow get to heaven in spite of their ignorance of the gospel, but rather they will be condemned like the others. Not for failing to believe on Jesus, of whom they've not heard, of course, but for failing to do what they should do, even apart from God's special revelation. So we know and understand what happens to the ignorant heathen. Let me answer another question. What happens to children and handicapped? What do we do with that? What do we do to the mother who's lost a child? What do we do with uh, the parents of uh, disabled children who cannot comprehend the gospel of Jesus Christ? Tim, are they condemned as well? I will tell you my answer is different. I would say that I believe with all my heart that Scripture gives us enough understanding that they will be a part of the elect. They will be a part of the kingdom of God. Why? Because the three things that man, the ignorant man, is condemned for, for their view and being able to see creation, for their ability to live a life according to a moral code, and for their conscience. I believe that there is an age by which a child is unable to do that, and I believe there are handicaps that, unable, that are keeping disabled people from being able to reach that. Now, how do I base that? On the mercy of God. Now, if God consigns every infant and every handicapped individual to hell, I will praise God. 
If he says they're all in heaven, I will praise God. Do you understand what I'm getting at? These are unfathomable statements. And we can make our understanding and our speculation from Scripture to try to have the best theological understanding of it. But I will tell you at the end of it, God is God and we are not. God is right, we are wrong. The Bible says every man, woman, and child will be silenced at the day of judgment. So we tread lightly. What's the application from this this morning? I know it's a heavy message, but you guys want to go through Romans, and this is what we get when we go through Romans. Romans tells us there are four things in our text. Number one, recommit yourself to the Great Commission. Recommit yourself to the Great Commission. There are people in Alaska that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are people in Africa who need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your neighbor needs to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're on the road to hell and damnation. And so what do you have? You have the good news. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, turn there for a moment because I want you to understand this, is, this isn't just some thought he comes with uh, in this text and then never deals with it again. But notice in Romans 10 verse 14. As you're turning there, he says in verse 13, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God says they need to hear. God says go and tell them. We tell them because it is what brings life. We need to be recommitted to the Great Commission, going and making disciples. What we were a part of today with Denny needs to be happening in every aspect of our lives. Commit yourself to it. Number two, remember, no one is beyond salvation. No one is beyond salvation. If God has imprinted the uh, moral code on every human being, man, woman, and child, that they're able to look at creation and see God's visible qualities and uh, his visible attributes and invisible qualities by based on creation, if God has placed a conscience in the life of every person, then no one is beyond salvation. Because the Spirit can be working in any of those individuals' lives. So don't think anybody's beyond salvation. Don't say, you know what, they're too far gone. They're not. Are people that are worshiping Islam, are they too far gone? No, because they have a conscience. They have the Spirit of God uh, that has stamped His approval uh, or His image upon them. And so then when we preach the gospel, they're able to understand. Number three, be real with God and others now instead of later. The text that, that I pull that from is the last verse that we have. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that every secret you have is going to be laid bare before God? And I thought about that and I said, you know what? I'd rather deal with that now than I would on the day of judgment. So I'm going to speak honestly. And I'm going to do it with God. I'm going to confess my sin. It's better that I confess it uh, to him now than to do it later. Why? Because God says he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I need to speak truthfully to the people around me. Why? Because they will stand before me as I stand before God on the great day of judgment. And all my secrets and all my thoughts will be laid bare. Just to God, no to all. Number four, reclaim your conscience by holding it captive to Scripture. Paul says your conscience isn't just this little thing that makes you feel bad when you do wrong and it's this little thing that makes you feel good when you do right, but it is God's involvement. It is God's image placed within you. So what does that mean? As believers, reclaim it. Put it back in its place. How do you do that? By living according to the Scriptures. I know this has been a tough text to deal with. I can tell by just the quietness of the room. Guys, understand this. God's got it figured out. 
God's going to do it right. He did it right in the beginning. He'll do it right in the end. And we need to be humble and we need to pray that our hearts and our minds will be set on that and that God has given us a job to do and not worry about God's job, but to worry about our own. In doing that, we will praise God on that day of judgment. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I thank you for this text. Lord, it's a text that is full of struggles and full of questions. And Lord, I want us to humble ourselves this morning, knowing that you've got it under control, knowing that you will do it all right in the end. And so, Lord, we place ourselves humbly before you, knowing that we are just a man. Who are we to think that we could do it any better? Who are we to cast judgment on the just God of creation? So, Lord, give us that humility. Lord, allow us to ask questions. Allow us to bring forth um, the understanding that comes from your word. But Lord, allow us to understand that there is, through your word, a condemnation that will come for those who have never trusted you as their Savior. Lord, spur in us a desire to go and tell others about the gospel, that we would not just be a church that uh, talks about the Great Commission, but that does it whether it's at a Valentine's dinner here at church, whether in our neighborhood, or whether, Lord, we are sent or we send our uh, gifts over to those across the world who need to hear the gospel. Lord, we want to do this because you say how beautiful are the feet that bring good news. So, Lord, give us the strength, give us the courage to do that. We give this all to you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.